Gateway, so good to be here with you. I'm pretty sure that's what I say most weeks, and sincerely, it, it is. I, the, the folks for whom this space, this digital space, is a place of encouragement, it's a place where we come to the scriptures to encounter the living God, I am, I am so humbled and grateful that it is a gift to you. And we, we hope here at Gateway that that's what it is. You know, as we just continue to uh, posture ourselves in a position of receiving, uh, to say we, we want to pursue the presence of God, we want to be formed out of the image of the world and into the image of Jesus and join in the renewal of all things. This is just a part, and it's it's a really sweet part. Um, and so as, as we're here, I, I know that things are quickly evolving around us as it pertains to COVID-19 and regulations across cities and states, countries globally, etc. And so I want to just give you an update of where we are. So this Sunday, which would be June 6th, we are recommending masks as optional. And so we've uh, taking guidance from the CDC. Our board has taken that information and I hope to just continue to live out of our values. And just as a reminder of, of what we mean when we say that living out of our values is we desire to be a community of honor and hospitality. And so honor is putting the, the good of another ahead of our own and um, seeking to outdo one another. I love how Eugene Peterson says it. He says, um, like playing the second fiddle. And so we, we want to we want to do that for especially the vulnerable, and that's a unique and distinct posture of the way in, in the way of Jesus, and to be a community of hospitality, uh, to to receive people. And so you know it, it's been a difficult season to try and do those and do those well. And so I just I thank you, I honor you for continuing to engage in this season, especially in this way, and it, and what a gift it has been. And so just as a reminder that. The masks will be recommended as optional on the 6th. And for the second week in a row, you know, we, we launched Gateway Kids this past Sunday. And it's such an encouragement to see that team pray together, kind of set that space up and um, to see like the basement bar at the Come and Go Theater have like a redemptive flavor to it, to n- know that... Um, small little humans all the way up through second grade will be pointing or be pointed to Jesus in that space. So what a gift that is. So I just, uh, I want to remind you of those things. If you have any questions, please reach out info at thegatewaychurch.com. And so those are our little housekeeping items here. And so now we're uh, continuing in our teaching series on emotional health and the way of Jesus. And if this is kind of your first time jumping in with us, here's, uh, I guess, a way to get into the waters as we look at the past part two. Uh, Have you ever been in a situation where you're trying to live out a value and in the midst of you trying to live out this core value, you're dismissed? Uh, Let me me put a little flesh on those bones. Uh, Here's what I mean. Say you're seeking forgiveness from someone. Say you're seeking forgiveness for having misrepresented that person uh, in a public space. So hypothetically speaking, you're talking with some friends and you are talking about a person when they're not present. And I, I know, I'm, I'm sure this isn't you or me, uh, but hypothetically speaking, let's say this happens sometime and you are misrepresenting this person who's not there to the people you're with. You you go away from that moment, you feel a mixture of sadness and um, like 
grief in your spirit, and that's what you could call conviction. And so you end up going to that person. And as you go to that person, you share with them. You say, I didn't live according to my values. I have to apologize. I did and then fill in the blank. In this scenario, I misrepresented you to these people. I said this, you weren't present there to defend yourself or anything, and I, I want to apologize. And now imagine you're doing this, you're trying to live out your core value, and in the midst of this, either that person or maybe somebody around you gives a nice eye roll. H how do you feel when that happens? What kind of energy gets going in your body when the eye roll takes place? Maybe it's a little bit of anger, some disgust, rejection, sadness. Or maybe maybe in this moment, you're actually the one rolling your eyes, and so you feel some contempt, some annoyance going on inside of you. I, either way, these, these words that we've just thrown out, and, and many other words like them, they're words to help us articulate, to just to make sense of what's going on inside and then get it out. I recently learned that there's some 34,000 emotions. Like, that's crazy. And then the ways that we can express them, but generally we operate uh, with, a, I don't know, maybe 10 or 12 if you wrote out a list, like, how are you feeling right now? Maybe 10 or 12 is what you get. Or maybe you just get two. It's like, uh, and uh. You know, that's, that's your range and that's all you can express. And if that's where you're at, we celebrate that. We want to maybe see that grow to like, uh, three. So uh, <laughs> I just, I paint this scene and I really ask this question, how does that feel to remind us that this little series we're in on emotional health and the way of Jesus, it's not just an abstract thing. It's not just an intellectual exercise or trying to psychologize the Bible. No, this is real life. And as we live into this life situated in our values that are informed by Jesus, man, we bring all of ourselves to it. And so emotions are not optional. God created us as emotional beings, and in so doing, he called it good. The failure to recognize that goodness and then attend to the energy that is in emotion or emotions, then it's, it's a failure to intend, attend to how God desires us to be. Granted that um, those emotions are, have, have been warped and marred by this thing that we call sin, a failure to reflect God in nature, attitude, and action, but to be very candid, um, to place emotional health next to the way of Jesus, it signals our underlying assumption here at Gateway that Jesus cares about your emotional well-being. So that's why we're here. That's why we're looking at the past. That's why we'll continue to learn what does it mean to uh, notice and name and attend to in love the things going on in and around us. Because, as the line goes, we cannot be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. And so to help us get at our emotional health in the way of Jesus, we've, we've been erecting some scaffolding to move around the structure of our life in partnership with the Spirit. And this past week, we began to look into the past together. And I was really struck by what came out of that for me personally. Specifically, two things. Uh, first, uh, we, I mean, may not really even know how to name the emotions that gurgle up. Like I, I listed those things, um, annoyance or 
goodness, like condemnation. Maybe those are things that you wouldn't even recognize as how you name your emotions. And I was chatting with a gal in our community, Linnea, after our gathering this past week, and she was like, you know, folks may not even know this. Like, and I was struck, I was like, oh yeah, this is a pretty big gap. Like, do we have the language? And I would just assume, I just made an assumption. And so I, I apologize, like, I thought, yeah, these folks, they're relatively intelligent people. They are attuning to these things. They're attentive to their interior life, et cetera, et cetera. And then, um, and then I start to try and like name the things that are happening inside of me. And I just feel like it's a big blank board of nothing. I'm going, oh, I, yeah, we need some help here. And so to that end, here's a chart. So this is a Pluchek's wheel of emotion. And this wheel, it's a helpful tool to examine, remember that scaffolding, to examine the structure of our life. And so you'll notice that the intensity of the emotion, it increases as you move toward the center of this circle and it diffuses as you go outward. And then the baseline, the baseline emotions, according to this little framework, is that second circle from the center. It comprises anger and anticipation, joy, trust, fear, sadness, and disgust. And this is significant not only because it increases our vocabulary to express our emotions and thereby increases our capacity to notice, name, and attend to and love what's going on in and around us, but on a, on a practical note, it, it actually helps us to begin this work. Because how can you name if you, how, well, you may notice something, but if you don't have the tools to name it, then you're kind of stuck. So this practically, I think, can help us get unstuck. And this leads me to this second thing that I noticed this past week of looking into the past is these memories that were coming forward. And I know my memories are not yours, that's obvious. But there were these memories that cropped up in the wake of looking back. You know, we introduced this little tool to our community group leaders and kind of talked a bit about it on in the gathering of the genogram. And it's basically a tool for to look at the relational dynamics of your family tree back to three, four generations more, if you know them, to see the patterns that take place there. And as I was reviewing my own, I this memory come up. Like I, I grew up playing ice hockey, which is a bit of an odd thing considering I was born and raised 16 years in San Diego. And yet one of the most vibrant memories that cropped up was the placement of my parents in a hockey rink. If you're unfamiliar with hockey, just picture a circle and stretch it out, and that's a rink. And then at each end, you're going to have these tiny nets and pinging around that rink, which is covered in ice is a little tiny hunk of rubber called a puck. And you're going to have uh, two teams who are trying to get that tiny hunk of rubber into those teeny tiny nets. And that's basically it. Whoever can do that more over the course of three 20-minute installments called periods, well, they win the game. And so the bulk of the time in those 20-minute installments, I spent standing in front of that net, trying to make sure that little hunk of rubber, that puck, stayed out. And, and this is where the memory then cropped out. It, it was pretty simple, but it was a look to my left or to my right. And, and then a glance up to center ice and then up in the stands. And if I looked to my left or right, I could see my mom. If I looked up to center ice and up in the stands, most times I could see my dad. And the 
The glance was quick and the nod matched the speed of the glance. And in that moment was this moment of affirmation. You're doing well. Keep going, keep your head in it. This is all the stuff that's happening. No words spoken in the nod, but everything that needed to be said was said. See, this memory sums up a lot of my life. Looking side to side, up and back for affirmation. And I share this because I hold the conviction that at the core of us, we all desire to be seen and known and loved. We desire to be affirmed. And for many of us, this is the thing. Like when we settle down the noise of our life long enough, this is the, the dull hum that comes back quickly, the desire for affirmation. It's why we do the work that we do. It's why we live the lives that we live. It's this desire for affirmation. And as we witnessed last week, pain, and specifically traumatic pain, if, if left unattended to, if left untouched, it does not go away. It just goes deeper, and it often goes through us. It, it goes forward. Father Richard Rohr will say that a pain that is not transformed is transmitted. So it doesn't stop with us, it keeps going. And wouldn't you believe it? Striving for affirmation, it can distort the way we live. It, it, it deforms relationships and work and play into odd transactions where effort equals praise and praise equals a sense of well-being. So what if we lived from, not for affirmation? What would be the composition of our lives if we lived from and not for affirmation? You know, this little series on emotional health and the way of Jesus, this might feel a bit heavy, especially if this is one of your first times here jumping in with us. And, and if, this, if that does, if you're going, this is a bit heavy, that is an apt observation. Because for most of us, the past, that is a weighty place. We have gone through great efforts to block the past off. We do incredible mental gymnastics to avoid things from the past when they crop up. We are so adept at that avoidance that the prospect of looking back, even of itself, seems ridiculous. And so if you're thinking, this seems a little bit heavy, uh, I came here for some Jesus light. Well, um, that's, that's not how we roll. And we want to step into reality because reality is where we meet with God. So yes, this, this may very well be heavy, but when we talk about the past, we're not talking about a place of nostalgia, but we're, we're talking about the reality that has shaped us and is shaping us into who and how we are. And nowhere do we confront that reality like our family of origin. And if that feels a bit squishy, just run through your mind's eye the holidays, whether that's a Thanksgiving or a Christmas or whatever holiday family members came around. Maybe it's a family reunion in your mind. The awkward conversations, the apprehension and the gnawing discomfort when the instigator, uh, you know, says the thing that they're not supposed to say. Uh, in, in my family, it's uh, pretty much just politics. I, not, not that that's anybody else's family. It's probably just unique to us. Um, 
which is which is you know in 2020 was like a tinderbox. You say one peripheral thing and it's like everybody freaks out. It's fantastic. Um, I'm in process trying to figure out why I think that's fantastic. Nevertheless, so the instigator uh, brings up politics, and then in all those moments, that's where the eye rolls exist. So of course we would want to avoid that pay, that place. That's what we mean by the family of origin, not just your brothers and your sisters and your mom and your dad, but the whole group. You see, outside of Jesus, our family of origin is likely the strongest force shaping who we are. And some, like our, our life is essentially the accumulation of our past, the good, the bad, and those kind of fuzzy in-between places. If we're honest, looking back at those fuzzy in between places, those good ones, those bad memories, all of those things, looking back can make us feel stuck in our present. Because the past reminds us that Jesus may be in our hearts, but grandpa's in our bones and grandma too. And that scares the you know what out of us. And yet if we don't go back, there's a risk that we might not actually go forward because our past defines our present instead of who and whose we are defining our present. More on that in a moment. Last week, we were confronted with the power of generational sin, the power of past patterns, and we traveled down four generations in Genesis. We went from Abraham down to Joseph to see that Father Abraham had many sons, and they were all a bit dysfunctional. Lying, misogyny, favoritism moved from one generation to the next. And it wasn't like they were getting lighter as it moved down generation to generation. They were getting more deeply entrenched and enmeshed because if you don't deal with the pain, it doesn't go away. It just goes deeper. That's not the end of the story. Even in the midst of the trauma and the sin, blessing can come. And not every pattern that's passed on is bad. I know that can be hard to believe in the midst of the mess. And so today, I, I want us to take another look at this family to see how this story and our stories are not just one-sided. That, that is, in God's good world, sin does not have to have the final word. In fact, in Jesus' name, it does not. In the midst of the mess, there can be beauty. It doesn't mean the mess goes away just means we know how to situate ourselves in the midst of it. And that very well could be the beautiful thing. So we're going to read quite a bit of scripture with a few observations along the way and then turn again to ask this question, what if we lived from and not for affirmation? So with that in mind, go back with me uh, to Genesis chapter 12. We're going to move relatively quickly. So these will be on the screen. If you're at home, you can flip or tap your way. Um, Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. And the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household. This is Abram's family of origin. Go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, I will, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This right here is the beginning 
of the foundation for the people of Israel, the Hebrew people. It's a story that then reaches its climax in the person and words and works of Jesus of Nazareth. And then through Jesus extends to you and me by faith, by trust, by allegiance. So uh, though these words were not written about us or to us, these are for us. In Jesus, these words tell us a bit about our own family story. And notice how that story, or rather our story, starts. Blessing. And the idea of blessing in the Bible, it's to simply speak words that invoke divine favor. And blessing is nothing less than that, and often quite more than that. There's um, like physical gifts, there's presence, there's times that accompany that divine favor. And in our time, our place and the environment that we inhabit, this kind of larger ecosystem of evangelicalism, I feel cautious about the language of blessing, and maybe you do too. But mostly because blessing language can veil this distinctly American, Western, capitalistic desire to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. Biblical blessing is not that. Rather, Biblical blessing, the blessing we read about in Genesis 12, it's about Yahweh's promise, the Lord's promise to father Abraham. To be a blessing to him so that through him, Abraham might turn and extend that blessing in kind. Note that line at the end, all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. And this blessing, this divine fathering, it didn't stop with Abraham. It was passed down to the next generation through the father. So turn with me then to Genesis chapter 25, and we'll pick up in verse 7. Abraham lived 175 years, and Abraham breathed his last and died at a good old age, I'd say so. An old man and full of years, and he was gathered to his people. His sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah near Mamre in the field of Ophron, son of Zohar the Hittite, the field Abraham had bought from the Hittites. And there Abraham was buried with his wife Sarah. Notice this in verse 11. After Abraham's death, God blessed his son Isaac, who then lived near Beer Lahai Roy. See, right there in verse 11, we see that God is the one who is moving this blessing. And the father is the one who initiates it. So there's this dynamic interplay. Keep going. to Turn the page to Genesis uh, 26, picking up in verse 23. From there, he went up to Beersheba. And that night, the Lord appeared to him and said, no, this is uh, to Isaac. That night, the Lord appeared to Isaac and said, I am the God of your father, Abraham. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bless you. Notice this language. It might sound familiar, and I will increase the number of your descendants for the sake of my servant, Abraham. And right there, Isaac built an altar. He called on the name of the Lord. He pitched a tent, and servants dug a well. See, this pattern continues. This blessing extends. It moved from Abraham to Isaac. And then what we see is that it will go forward again. And yet this time, that generational sin, specifically the lying, the, cons- the, the, the 
deceit that is caught up in this family gets in the way. Kind of. Chapter 27, turn the page. Picking up in verse 1, we read, When Isaac was old and his eyes were weak so that he could no longer see, he called for Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, here I am, he answered. Isaac said, I am now an old man and don't know the day of my death. Now then, get your equipment, your quiver and bow, and go to the open country to hunt some wild game for me. Prepare me the kind of tasty food I like and bring it to me so that I may give you my blessing before I die. This moment, we kind of enter the fray. There is in between verse 4 and verse 18 a plot that is hatched, and we see it unfold here. The two sons of Isaac, Esau, Jacob. Here it is. Verse 18 Jacob went to his father and said, My father, yes, my son, he answered, Who is it? Remember, poor eyesight. Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I've done as you told me. Please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. And Isaac asked his son, how did you find it so quickly? And then note the spiritualized answer yet again. The Lord your God gave me success, he replied. So just, just for a moment, pause right there. Do, do you notice how the, like the conniving of Jacob in this moment? He's, his name literally means uh, the, the usurper or con man. And so he is conning his own father for this blessing. Note, note the weight of it, to the extent to which he's willing to go to get it. Picking up in verse 21, then Isaac said to Jacob, come near so I can touch you, my son, to know whether you really are my son Esau or not. And Jacob went close to his father who touched him and said, ah, the voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him, for his hands were hairy like those of his brother Esau. And so he proceeded to bless him. And it's like this, this hitch and his giddy-up right there. Are you really my son Esau? I am. And you're like you can sense, even hear like the, the apprehension and the questions and the hesitancy, yet there's there's the, the feel, the touch. It's like, okay, yes. Um, okay, okay, we'll keep we'll, we'll keep going. But the stakes are high. We find that out in the next passage. I mean, we see why. Verse 25, then he said, my son, bring me some of your game so I may eat and give you my blessing. And Jacob brought it. He ate it. He had some of the wine. He drank. His father, Isaac said, come here, my son, and kiss me. So he went and he kissed him. And when Isaac caught the smell of his clothes, he blessed him. And he said, ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you heaven's dew and earth's riches and abundance of grain and new wine. Many nations serve you and may people bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may, those, and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed and those who bless you be blessed. The blessing might sound a bit odd to us. The agrarian imagery is altogether appropriate. This blessing, it, it's one that's organic and earthy, and it's, it's describing almost the creative capacity that remains in the earth. It's, it, it is a part of the vocational reality of what it means to be human. In other words, he is saying, 
this is who you are. This is how you are. I see it and I want it to prosper in God's name. Now watch what unfolds in verse 30. After Isaac finished blessing him and Jacob had scarcely left, so he's just getting out of the room, his his brother Esau came in from hunting and he too prepared some tasty food and brought it to his father. You can just picture the scene. I mean, Jacob has on a garment that would make him be like smell like his brother. That would be furry because his brother's like really hairy. And then he's he's coming in and he leaves his father's presence. And imagine the satisfaction of his father having extended the blessing. And yet behind the curtain, Esau is coming in with anticipation. Jacob's leaving with a different type of anticipation. We pick up here. My father... Here's Esau. Please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. And his father Isaac asked him, who are you? I'm your son, your firstborn Esau. And Isaac trembled violently and said, who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? I ate it just before you came and blessed him and indeed he will be blessed. And when Esau heard his father's words, he burst out with a loud and bitter cry and said to his father, bless me, me too, my father. But he said, your brother came deceitfully and took your blessing. Isn't he rightly named Jacob? Con man, deceiver. This is the second time he's taken advantage of me. He took my birthright and now he's taking my blessing. Haven't you reserved any blessing for me? Isaac answered Esau, I've made him Lord over you. I've made all his relatives, his servants. I've sustained him with grain and new wine. So what can I possibly do for you, my son? And just like the the heartbreak of Esau in verse 38, do you have only one blessing? My father, bless me too. And he wept aloud. Just notice the weight of the blessing. This is is not like just a matter of inheritance or squabbling over money. I mean, Esau sold his inheritance, the right to be the firstborn, for a bowl of stew. So it's, it's not about that. It's not about being reinstated as the firstborn. He's known as that to his father. There's a, a special affection that he has in his father's eyes. It's not about money. It's not about any of that. So what is the blessing? It's the father's love. Maybe that sounds trite or insignificant or squishy or maybe you're watching this and you think, ah, it feels a bit effeminate. Well, just check yourself for a moment. See, this is about the affirmation of a father over a son. To, to be seen, to be known, to be loved. To, to know that you rest in the intersection of trust and joy in your father's heart. Tell me that sounds squishy or insignificant or trite. No, that that sounds like security and belonging and hope. Instead, this is the blessing that Esau hears. 
Your dwelling will be away from the earth's riches, away from the dew of heaven above. You will live by the sword. You will serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you will throw his yoke from off your neck. And Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. And I think we would too. I I think we would hold a deep sense of bitterness over the weightiness of this. And, and, and you know what? You might think that after this, this is just a mix-up. This is a little like, communication snafu. That's where the breakdown is. So uh, let's just bring both parties in and we'll have a good arbiter. Like we'll, we'll mediate this and then the blessing can go in the appropriate place. And yet it seems as though God shows up in the midst of the mess, that he honors the decisions and the choices that are made, the blessings and the absence of blessings. And And this is actually quite beautiful. Turn with me to chapter 28, verse 10. We pick up and we read this. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. And taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a a stairway, or really it's, it's this ramp. And the ramp was resting on the earth and at its top, it's reaching up to the heaven. There's angels ascending and descending and the Lord is there atop it all. And, And Yahweh says this to Jacob, I am Yahweh, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you're lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. It's all nations kind of language here. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and I will watch over you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land and I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. See, the father extends the blessing and then the father of the fathers affirms it. Four chapters later, it's like that moment, that vision uh, that Jacob has is in question. He's about to confront Esau. So he's amassed to this wealth and he's like sending all of his stuff to Esau as a gift because he's afraid of his life. And then he's there alone in the night. And before the dawn is breaking, a man who Jacob calls the like God, he wrestles with him and he's wrestling with him. He's striving with God to receive a blessing. In that moment, this man, this like appearance of God in that space says, you will no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, which means strives with God. Striving for the blessing. He had it, and yet he didn't have it, and yet he wanted it so deeply he would not stop. You fast forward 20 chapters-ish from there, you get a Genesis 48 and you see that that, uh, Jacob, now old in age, is extending blessing to his son, Joseph. He's extending it to him and his sons. And the, the point here is simple, like what we've seen through these generations is that we all have a mixed bag of heritage. We all come from somewhere with a story and some of the stories are beautiful and some of the stories are tragic. We have a mixed heritage, and in the midst of that, we all desire affirmation. We all desire a blessing. And we get a couple of blessings in this. 
Here's, here's what I mean. Surveying our past can be painful for sure. And it doesn't mean it ought not be fruitful as well. See, our instinct in the midst of pain, it's to, to fix and control and understand. And that impulse is itself understandable. Because we want to know the why behind it. We want to know why, why did this thing happen? And more specifically, if we're honest, we had a little prepositional phrase on the end. Why did this happen to me? It's almost like we can't see beyond the bounds of the pain. And, and so then we take this tool like the genogram and we look back at our family of origin and we start to map out the, the places of hurt and strains and patterns and generational sin. And then we stop. As though that is the explanation for how and who we are. We see the sin, but we neglect the blessing. So Richard Rohr, he has this great little nugget of wisdom where he says this, if we do not transform our pain, we will most assuredly transmit it. And he goes on to say this, usually to those closest to us, our family, our neighbors, our coworkers, and invariably the most vulnerable, our children. In other words, we break our kids where we are broken. And maybe you're saying, well, I don't have any children. I don't have a desire to have children. You are someone's child. And it's likely that the brokenness you feel is the brokenness that was felt above you. So the genogram, if, if done well with humility, in any of these tools, looking back at our past or whatever, we're, this whole series, it's, my hope is that it would cultivate compassion in our hearts to know that we all carry a mixed heritage and we all desire a blessing. So it is good for us to name the sin and with Jesus receive healing in the place of that pain because the healing is where God gives the gift of our healing selves to the world. And it is good to name the blessing. It's good to name it. And with God's help to, to keep it in motion and see it carry on. You may have never thought about this, but like, what are your generational blessings? If you've kind of entered into this journey of doing the genogram, and if you haven't, that's totally fine. If you're not ready for it, that's totally fine. The invitation is still there, but if you've done this and you've started to map out three to four generations, mom, dad, grandmas, uncles, aunts, siblings, all of that, just look back. Recall, where are those? And how can you draw those out to pass them on? In this process, I've just been reminded it's, it's, kind of remarkable, like my great-grandmother, my grandma Doris, a woman I, I hardly know, she just came to my mind and it's this memory. A few years ago, I went and visited her and I had no idea what the genogram was at this point. So I, this is not like some elap, like really cool thing where I did the genogram and wanted to bless her. And anyways, um, I went and visited her and she shared with me that she had been praying for me since I was like in my mother's womb. P praying. This woman basically prayed me to Jesus and I hardly knew her. My, my maternal grandfather, he kind of, he came to trust Jesus in his 30s and he functionally did the same thing. He joined Dor Doris. They had a great relationship though. He was separated. There's divorce and all sorts of messy stuff going on there. 
I have this heritage of prayer. And like remembering this, it gives some explanatory power in my own life to why I so desire to cultivate intimacy with God, which is what prayer basically is, so that others might know his goodness. See, we have these things. There's beauty in the midst of the mess. Sometimes the beauty comes as God meets us and reminds us of these obscure things. Maybe you don't come from a a heritage of faith. And my goodness, like for for you, you, you just think, this whole thing is just gross. Like I don't even want to think about my family. I just want to share with you, you're here. That's a gift. You exist. That is a gift. And you see, sometimes in the midst of, of our pain, it's like a valley. And so we, we, we think that that's where we're, and we feel stuck in the midst of it. And it makes sense because it's like, I can't, how can I ever get out of this? And so we need a different vantage point to see ourselves clearly. It's like we, we need to be like, captured out of that. We need to be evacuated. We need to be rescued from that place to see beyond the hurt. And so I just want us to close the same place we closed last week with Jesus. Matthew 3, 17, because, you know, the story that we witnessed this morning, the story that we walked through, it's a story of blessing extending from one generation to the next amidst the mess. And this story, it has power if you will let it. It's all invitation. It has power to awaken and sustain a hunger for God. Keep that in mind as we hear these words. Jesus has just gone into the Jordan River to be baptized into this baptism of repentance with John the baptizer. To say the blessing you've been waiting for has come and his name is Jesus. And he comes up out of the baptismal waters. And this is what we read, Matthew 3, 17. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Before Jesus has done a single thing, the Father declares affirmation over him. In Jesus, we see what it is to live and move from and not for affirmation. His whole ministry extends from that place. He doesn't strive for blessing. He works from it. And the blessing does not stop there. You see, this is our vantage point whereby we can see our new selves or rather see ourselves in the midst of our pain. Let these words just wash over you. This is from the beginning. It's Paul's opening to his letter to this church in Ephesus, a a church whom he loves, whom he's grieved when he has to leave. And listen to these words. Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. He's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. 
in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things on heaven and on earth under Christ. In him, that is in Jesus, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with his purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in the Messiah, in Christ, when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed, when you trusted. You were marked with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. If you don't get it yet, God is exalting over you in Christ. In the midst of your pain, in the valley of your suffering, from the vantage point of Jesus, God is saying, yes, to the praise of his glory, you possess every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every single one. That is our blessing. And it's from there that we then look in the place of pain. We look at our family of origin and we start to see that is messy. And there's a heritage of prayer and there's a heritage of, of faith and, and there's, there's like entrepreneurship. And my, my great-grandfather was the first one to receive an education and then finish that. And now I stand here and like whatever your thing is, you look at it from the security of the father's love to be fathered by the father. And I know for many of us that we carry a deep woundedness in our spirit because we just want our own father to say, I see you. I know you. I love you. It's a place of trust and joy that you are held in my heart. And in the absence of our earthly fathers speaking that over us, in Jesus, our heavenly father is exalting over us. It doesn't, does not like heal that thing. And maybe for you it does. It hasn't for me. And there's love there. There's affirmation in the Father. To sit in his presence is a gift. So we look back to look forward. We notice those places of pain and we do so from the vantage point, the, the lookout post of our position in Christ. And maybe you're thinking, no, there's no blessing. Again, you're here. That is a gift. It's a gift to me, it's a gift for this church. And according to what we just read in Ephesians, it is a gift to God. It's to the praise of his glorious grace. And so, church, that scripture is my prayer for you, that you would know the blessing that you have, that we have in Jesus, that we would know our position despite our condition, and that we would rest secure in the Father's love. Grace and peace. Amen.